Our most gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that it instructs us. Thank you for the way that it directs us. Thank you for the way that it convicts us even. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word in order that we may know you more fully, in order that we may not only know you, but worship you in a way that is pleasing unto you. So we pray, Lord, that as we study your word today, that our hearts and minds would be focused on you, that you would use your word to inform our minds, but more than that, to transform our lives. We pray, Lord, that Christ would be glorified greatly during this time and that our hearts would be filled with faith in him and filled with hope in what is to come because he rose again. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 to 5 today. And at the heart of this passage is the greatest hope imaginable. The greatest hope that anybody, anywhere, at any time could have. And hope is an essential part of who we are as human beings, isn't it? I mean, living with hope is often the difference between failure and success. It can also be the difference between life and death. There was a tragic study released a couple years ago that documented the connection between losing hope and an individual committing suicide. Noting that the rise in suicide in recent years has been so drastic that the overall life expectancy in America has begun to decline for the first time since the 1930s. The article notes this. It says, quote, by 2014, the epidemic was countrywide, found in both rural and urban areas in every region of the United States. And the article continues saying that sociologists have documented the close connection between the retreat from marriage and declining religious participation, especially among the working class. And, and this is, this is the, the main point that I want to draw your attention to. It says, as a consequence of these changes, many Americans have lost the narrative of their lives, as one of the researchers puts it. This leads to a loss of meaning and hope. So what we have to understand is that there is a crisis in our day which is directly linked to people losing hope. And there have been a lot of very interesting uh, you know, studies and articles written on the subject of hope. The importance of hope is seen in the fact that college students who test as being more optimistic, more hopeful, tend to have higher grade point averages than less less hopeful counterparts. Uh, other studies have revealed that hopeful athletes actually perform better on the field, they cope better when they are injured, and they have a greater ability to make mental adjustments when situations change. And, and studies on the elderly have even shown that those who said they felt hopeless were more than twice as likely to die during the study follow-up period than those who tested as being hopeful. So hope is a serious thing. 
Hope is something that we need. This, this helps us to understand uh, why people grasp for hope and why the, the message of hope is so important to people, how it draws people, how it fills them with optimism and gives them enough to just go a little bit further, to keep on going. It gives them just a little bit more peace of mind, a little bit more stability. You might even say it's an essential part of our survival instinct. It's so central to the human experience, having hope is, that people will automatically look for something to have hope in, something to have hope in. We need to have hope. We look for hope. But what is hope? Well, if you look to the world to define it, if you go to a dictionary or something, it's defined as something like this, expecting things to be better than they are. And this is actually, there's a phenomenon known as optimism bias, which helps to explain uh, why people tend to think that they're better at something than they actually are. I'll remember that next time I claim to be the best driver in the world. Um, (laughs) That's optimism bias. That's part of being hopeful. Believe it or not, there's actually a neuroscience behind that. But when we see the word hope in the Bible, it has a similar definition but maybe a little bit extra. It's not only an expectation that things will get better, but it's a promise that we look to. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines hope this way. It says, quote, to trust in, wait for, look for, or desire something or someone, or to expect something beneficial in the future. But the question is, why do you expect something beneficial in the future? Why do you expect that you won't just be going in a a direction where things are going worse and worse and worse. Why do we trust in? Why do we wait for? Why do we look for or expect something beneficial in the future? And the answer for the Christian, the answer for the person who is trusted in Christ, is ultimately because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. See, there are two main foundations of hope for the Christian, and they are closely connected to one another. The first foundation of hope for the believer has nothing to do with psychology. It has nothing to do with neuroscience. It has everything to do with God and who he is by his very nature. It is the faithfulness of God. You might call it the integrity of God. That term works too. It is God's integrity or God's faithfulness to accomplish what he has purposed to accomplish. His steadfast, unwavering commitment to fulfill the promises that he has made in his word. The second foundation of hope for the Christian is the fulfillment of one of those promises. Specifically, the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And this brings us to actually the problem that we face, however. And that is this. We we are all so prone. We are all so inclined to put our hope in anything else. Something else. Something, our situation, maybe. Uh, Somebody else, maybe a person, a president, we put our hope in ourselves, thinking that, you know, hey, if I, if I just do A, B, and C, then X, Y, and Z will happen. You know, if, if we just do all the right things, we'll have fewer things in life to worry about. And maybe some of you have actually faced the temptation. Maybe you're facing it today. 
The temptation to think that if you were maybe just a, a, a more faithful Christian, if you were just a better Christian, your children would behave a little bit better, or your marriage would be a little bit stronger, or maybe significantly stronger, or your finances would be more secure. And yet the Bible is very clear about this. There's really only one place for the Christian to put their hope, and it's not in ourselves. It's not in our very best efforts. We aren't to find hope just by learning to think positive, by learning to think optimistically. No, our hope is to come from something outside of ourselves that we look to. Our hope must come from an understanding of God's faithfulness in the resurrection. God's faithfulness as demonstrated in Christ raising from the dead. Now, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, but I specifically, uh, I especially want to draw your attention to what Peter says toward the end of verse 3, but verses 3 and 5 all form one complete thought, so it, it's all tied together, so we'll be looking at it as a whole. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Peter writes this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter starts this, this beautiful passage with what we would call a doxology, a statement of, of praise, of highest praise unto God. Peter declares that God is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And of course, God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of honor and worship because God is blessedness itself. If you have God... You could not be more blessed. When we forget all the rich blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul tells us that we have every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. When we forget that, it's easy for us to lose sight of the hope that we should live with every single day of our lives. And so we become discontent. We become maybe frustrated and we forget that we have every reason in the world to rejoice to rejoice with with thankfulness with joy think of the psalmist who wrote in psalm chapter uh, in psalm 103 verses 1 and 2 he says bless the lord o my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name bless the lord o my soul and forget none of his benefits did you catch that and forget none of his benefits. Now, if you were to, to read that particular psalm, you'd see that the psalmist from that point goes on to, to specifically outline some of those primary benefits that we have in Christ. He says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things. Those are all the benefits 
That's not all of them, but those are all benefits of being in Christ Jesus, of having God with us and for us. And in a similar way, having declared the blessedness of God, the Apostle Peter follows that up by going into details uh, about the ways that God has blessed his people. So verse 3 in its entirety says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the first thing that Peter says here is that God has given us mercy. Do you see that? He's given us mercy. The undeniable truth of the matter is that God is is blessed no matter what he does, right? He's blessed no matter what he does, whether he gives us mercy or not. I mean, he, he would have been perfectly just to condemn every single one of us because we have all sinned against him in thought, word, and deed, If he were to give us what we actually deserve, who could stand before him? All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of what he demands. None of us have given him the fullness of ourselves that he not only deserves, but that he is worthy of. He could have justly condemned every one of us, and he would still be blessed. But for those who are in Christ, he has not given us what we deserve. That's mercy. That's mercy. He, he, not, not giving us what we do deserve is mercy. But he also gave us what we didn't deserve. That's grace. That's grace. Those two things are very similar, but there is a distinction. One is not getting what we do deserve, mercy. And one is getting something that we don't deserve. That's grace. We deserve death. He gave us life. We deserve judgment. He gave us mercy and grace. He didn't just give us mercy. Peter says he gave us great mercy. Great mercy. And and this is where all sound doctrine, this is where, where legitimate faith and all theology must start. The Christian's first cry unto God is something along the lines of, God be merciful unto me, a sinner. And we have to understand that wherever God pours out his mercy, he does so greatly. He doesn't just sprinkle it a little bit out on you. No, he delivers it abundantly. Abundantly. It's not that we were sinners asking for a loaf of bread and he gave us a crumb. Rather, it would be more accurate to say that we were sinners begging for a crumb and he gave us a loaf of bread. And not just one loaf of bread, right? But, but a lifetime supply of bread. More than we asked for. More than we could ever eat. More, more than we need to satisfy our appetite. How generous would a man be who gives a loaf of bread to a beggar who is just asking for a crumb? How much more generous then is God in not executing justice against us and condemning us, but in pouring out his great abundant, inexhaustible mercy upon us. And what has he done by his great mercy? Peter says he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. He, God, in his mercy, he is the cause of the new birth that we've been talking about in our study of John 3. God himself pouring out his mercy is the cause of the new birth 
God in His graciousness, God in His loving kindness opened our eyes to behold the glorious, glorious promises of the gospel and our desperate need to have those promises for ourselves. Peter understands, and we have to understand, that it is entirely by God's mercy, not just His mercy, but by God's great mercy, not getting what we deserve, and grace, getting what we don't deserve, that we have been born again. And this is why we should be smitten with awe. We should be actually dumbfounded to consider the loving graciousness, the mercy, and the generosity of God. He didn't just give bread to a beggar. He started out by seeing that the beggar was dead and causing him to live, giving him life so that he may perceive his hunger, his need for bread, and ask for it. So let us behold the progression here. In his graciousness and in his loving kindness, God was merciful to those who are in Christ Jesus. And out of that gracious mercy, he caused us to be born again. And this is the means by which he poured out even greater blessings upon all who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Proceeding from the gift of being born again, Peter doesn't say that we've been born again to a dead hope or to a dying hope or to a hope that can't change anything or to a hope that doesn't really have any effect on our lives. No, Peter says that we are born again to a living hope. A living hope. He's not talking about wishful thinking, by the way, when he says hope. He's talking about a promise that is so certain, something that is, is so guaranteed, it is the only thing worth living for. And because it's worth living for, it's also worth dying for. As sinners who had rebelled against God in all that we do, in what we say, in what we think, who had done nothing but defy Him, we were without hope. We were without real hope. We were inclined to put our hope in anything but God and His promises in the gospel. And so anything that we had put our hope in was ultimately a dead and useless hope. A hope that was only going to be defiled. A hope that was going to perish. A hope that was going to fade away. Any hope that we had before coming to Christ was only wishful thinking. It was fleeting. It was here today and it was gone tomorrow. What kind of good is that kind of hope? I mean, if you can't trust in it, if it doesn't withstand the test of time, if it cannot endure God's righteous judgment, what good is it? That's a dead hope. That's a dead hope, but the hope that God has given us by grace and by causing us to be born again is a living hope. It's not just wishful thinking. It's a hope that endures. It's a hope that transforms. It's a hope that changes things. It's a hope that cannot be shaken. It's a hope that changes our lives from the inside out because it involves getting the new heart in the new birth. You see, earthly hopes and hoping in yourself, friends, those are Useless hopes. Those are dying hopes. The best thing that the person who has refused to turn from his sin and to receive Christ can say is that they are just wishing. That they're wishing for the best until their final breath. 
but death will be the end of their every hope. Death is the blade that destroys, that kills, that slays any and every worldly hope or hope that is in the flesh. But if you are in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is in something greater than you. And so your hope cannot be crushed. It cannot be killed. It cannot be maimed or even shaken, even by death. The resurrection of Jesus proves this very thing. It demonstrates that death cannot and will not thwart or prevent God from fulfilling his promises and his purposes unto his people. So let me ask you this. What implications would understanding this very thing have for your life today? Right where you are right now. See, it it empties us of what we would call false hope. It empties us of of any uncertainty and instead it fills us with confidence because our our hope isn't in ourselves, it's it's in God. Who can do anything? He can raise Jesus from the dead. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can fulfill every promise that he's made to us. And so it drives out fear and it fills us with courage, doesn't it? Think about what a difference this made for Peter. I mean, there was Peter at the Last Supper. He was bragging about how he would stand by Christ's side even until the very end, even if it meant dying. And whose hope, or what, who, in whom was his hope placed? It was in himself. And Jesus responded to Peter's boastful self-confidence by saying this to him. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Peter hadn't yet realized that his greatest hope wasn't actually Peter. Peter was still thinking that he was his own greatest hope. He had failed to realize that his greatest hope was that he belonged to Jesus. He belonged to Jesus, who who had actually interceded for him. He said, I have prayed for you. And Peter would actually learn this lesson before, before too long, not to trust in himself. But at this point, Peter isn't yet persuaded by Jesus' warning. And so he responds to Jesus saying, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. But Jesus, who saw that Peter's hope was still in himself rather than in Jesus, responded by saying, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will crow today, will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And you know what happened. You know how the story goes. Sure enough, Peter denies Jesus, not just once, not just twice, but he denies him the third time. And as Jesus, uh, as Peter denied Jesus the third time, you remember that Jesus is looking right at him. Peter's close enough to warm his hands on the enemy's fire, close enough for Jesus to look right at him as the rooster crowed. Knowing that Jesus saw Peter deny him a third time was like a nail in in a a tire. 
It was a nail to Peter's overinflated ego. Peter was instantly confronted by the weakness of his flesh, by the fact that he had hoped in himself rather than in Christ. And so he was devastated. He had lost all hope that he had ever known. He had lost all hope in himself, which was actually the best thing that could have happened to him. Amen? A few days later, on the first day of the week, some women came into Jerusalem. They had come from attempting to attend to the corpse of Jesus after he had been crucified and buried. But they came to the disciples with a strange report instead, that they had gone to the tomb of Jesus, but that the body of Jesus was no longer there. And they told the disciples of how an angel had told them, he is not here, but he is risen. And what was Peter's response to getting this news? He didn't say, huh, that's interesting, I'll, I'll check it out when I've got some free time. He didn't say, hey, uh, Andrew and, and Philip, maybe you guys could go and check this out for us and, and see what's going on over there. No, he took off running to the tomb to see it for himself. Why? Hope. Because he had hope again. He had hope again, only now his hope wasn't a dying hope. Now his hope was a living hope. Because his hope wasn't in himself. Now, for the first time in his life, his hope was in the right place. So let's understand that when Peter talks about the gift of being born again to a living hope, he's not just speaking abstractly. He's not speaking of theories and ideals that he really didn't know about on a personal level. No, he is speaking from experience, friends. He had a hope that could not be shaken because his hope wasn't in himself or in his circumstances or in anything of this world. His hope was in Christ. But let us see the foundation of this hope. We are born again to a living hope, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This, friends, the resurrection of Christ is the blessing upon which all of these, all of these other blessings stand. Everything that we are, everything that we believe, everything that the gospel promises to those who are in Christ that we have received, it all hinges on the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. Let me put it this way using Paul's words. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. In other words, what he's saying is that if there's no resurrection, every preacher in history is just wasting his life. If there's no resurrection, not only is there no Christianity, but we have lied about God. He says we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we're saying he did something that he didn't actually do, which means we're all in deep trouble come judgment day. But Paul would continue by saying, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So what does that imply? What, what does that mean? What are the direct implications of the resurrection in light of what Paul says here? It, it means this. It means that because Christ has been raised, our faith is not worthless. Because the tomb is empty, our faith is not empty. Because Christ has been raised, all who have put their trust in Christ are not still dead in their sins. We're living. We've got a living hope 
The resurrection of Christ is thus the foundation of the Christian faith. And if it's true that all of Christianity stands or falls on the historical reality of the resurrection, it shouldn't surprise us, friends, when you turn on the news or when you hear people who are unbelievers mocking the resurrection scoffing at the resurrection, ridiculing the resurrection, and, and, and everything else related to God. They, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If they're, if they're willing to worship the creature rather than the creator, of course they're going to deny the central tenet, the foundation of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But friends, what we have to understand is that the Christian hope is not that God will be good and kind to us if we'll just be gooder and do kinder to people, that God will bless us if we do that. The Christian hope is not even that if we do a little bit better at obeying God, all of our problems and all of our difficulties will go away. Now those things might happen, but that's not our hope because that's never promised. The Christian hope is that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, which is a guarantee of our future resurrection. Look what Peter says in verses 4 and 5 again with me. He says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is saying that our hope is not in ourselves. Peter is saying that our hope is not in our circumstances. He's saying it's not in the things of this world. He's saying that our hope is in the fact that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the salvation and the future resurrection of all who have trusted in him alone for salvation. So what does that mean for us today, though? We're talking about something that's going to happen. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's as certain as Christ's resurrection. But what does that mean for us today in the here and now? I mean, first, of course, the obvious. It shows us that our hope should not be and cannot be in ourselves or in the things of this world. I mean, that's what people do by nature, but these promises that we hope in are not natural, are they? They're They're supernatural. They're given by God. No, but not only are, are, are they given by God, but Peter says that they are imperishable, that they are undefiled, that they will not fade away. In other words, you cannot lose this inheritance. And you can't even lessen this inheritance. It is reserved for you in heaven, Peter says. And the question a lot of people will ask is, well, how can I know that I can't lose it? And truth be told, if your salvation or if your future resurrection unto glory uh, depended upon you at all, you would lose it. If it had anything to do with you, you would lose it. But Peter says this about the people of God, about anyone and everyone who has repented and placed saving faith in Christ Jesus. He says, you, you are protected by the power of God you are protected by the power of God. Listen to me very closely now. If you understand what Peter just said, if you understand this, that you are personally being protected by the power of God, 
What does this not change in your life? I mean, this changes absolutely everything. This is the lens through which you must perceive your most difficult circumstances and your fiercest temptations, that you personally are being guarded, preserved by the power of God. You are being protected by the power of God. Your hope is not that you'll be saved because you have a great faith. It's that you'll be saved because you have a great Savior. And you won't be saved because of your great faithfulness. You'll be saved because of His great faithfulness. But not only is there nothing that the person who has been legitimately adopted as a child of God can do to lose their inheritance that God is reserving for us in heaven, but there's also nothing that anybody else can do to take away or tarnish that inheritance either. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It's unfading. And it will stay that way because I'm not guarding it, you're not guarding it, but God himself is the one who is guarding it, protecting it, preserving it. He has reserved it for you in heaven, you who are being protected by the power of God. And thus there is no person who can take it away. And there is no circumstance in your life that can lessen it. Our hope must be set on this promise, friends. What you find your greatest hope in, what you place your greatest hope in, will have a profound impact on your entire life. For that reason, we have to find our greatest hope in the very place that the Bible instructs us to place our greatest hope, and that is in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. You know, I think one of the things that we will be most surprised at realizing when we are in glory is how much we owe to the providence of God. I mean, who can, who can fathom, who can count not only all the things, all the blessings that God has provided us with, but also what he has prevented from coming against us. We, we have no idea what he's prevented from coming against us. What is the foundation of our hope, friends? It's the demonstration of God's integrity, of God's faithfulness to his promises in the resurrection of Christ. God has promised salvation to all who are in Christ Jesus. And God's gospel promises to us are as certain and they are as sure as the fact that Christ himself was resurrected. And so our hope isn't found in our faithfulness which wavers but in God's faithfulness, which is unchanging. And what happens when we focus less on our faithfulness and more on God's faithfulness is that our faith, our, our confidence, our grasp of, of this hope that we have in Christ, it all grows stronger when we're looking at him and not ourselves. This hope sustains us. This hope sanctifies us. This hope purifies us from sin. It encourages us to keep going. It grows us. This is the hope that we must look to and cling to in all of life, friends. In every circumstance, the good times, the bad times, this has to be where our hope lies. It's an anchor in the fiercest storms of life to know that God has made promises in his gospel, that God himself not only has guaranteed, but that he, is, that he has reserved for us in heaven and that he is protecting us until we get there. Hallelujah.
His promises are sure. And his promises sustain us. One article I read said this. the, the, The author said this. He said, quote, It is our daily faith in this truth that gives us the full assurance of hope that the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, which raised Jesus from the dead, is just as sufficient to bring us to our final inheritance. End quote. By the way, you note that it's called an inheritance. It's not referred to as a prize, although the Bible does liken it to a prize elsewhere. It's not uh, referred to as a reward in this context. Peter says it's an inheritance. An inheritance is, is a gift. It's something that you cannot earn. This inheritance is our hope, and this inheritance is promised and guaranteed by God who is trustworthy and faithful to the end. Friends, hope Hope is a very powerful thing. Hope is a very powerful thing. You need hope. Every single one of you here today, everyone outside, everybody needs hope. But if our hope is in the wrong things, in ourselves or in the things of the world, then ultimately what's going to happen to that hope? It's going to fade away. It's going to be lost. It's going to be lost. But if Christ... If Christ himself is the object of our faith, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. If having even a dying hope can help a lost person to get through the day, how much more then should we who have a living hope be encouraged and sustained by clinging to the hope that we have in Christ? If a hope that will perish, if a hope that will be defiled, that will fade away, sustains somebody who does not know Christ, how much more for those of us who are in Christ should we be sustained by an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that cannot be damaged or lost or lessened? Do you see the way that living your life today with a firm understanding and confidence that God himself is actively protecting you by his power will sustain this hope through difficult seasons and through trials in life? See, not only does does God protect you outwardly with, with his providence, but also inwardly through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit who abides in everyone who has repented and placed faith in Christ Jesus. If the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwells within you, you have nothing to fear. He's providing for you outwardly. He's providing guidance and courage and wisdom for you inwardly. Sanctification, all those things, all these blessings. But the struggle that every single one of us faces is to keep our hope focused on the inheritance that's reserved for us in heaven. Focused. The, the struggle that we all face is to live daily in light of the promises that God has made in his gospel. But when we remain mindful of the certainty of this promise, this, this imperishable inheritance, this great hope that we have, it reminds us that God is with us, that God is for us, and as surely as Christ was raised from death to life, he will preserve our inheritance. He will preserve our faith. He will preserve our salvation in Christ through every single circumstance we face, even death. Death 
would be an enemy if Christ had not raised from the dead because it would be the end of our hopes. But Christ defeated death and now death has no sting for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says this. It says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Friends, I know that every single one of us here today either needs to feel this sense of divine hope today or the days will come when you do, when you will need to feel it in a very real way. And Scripture reminds us over and over again that we can cling to this hope and that this hope is an anchor for the soul. So friends, what's your hope in? What are you hoping in today? What are you trusting in today? Is it in yourself? Is it in your health? Is it in your circumstances? Is it in your spouse? Is it in your stockbroker? These are all things that people hope in, but they're dying hopes. They're they're not real hopes. It's a hope that will not sustain you, a hope that will eventually just disappoint you. Our hope belongs entirely in Christ Jesus, who was crucified, died, and buried. But he was raised again on the third day, thus demonstrating the certainty of our justification, of our sanctification, and of our glorification. Jesus Christ is risen, which reminds us, by the way, that he ascended into heaven and that he is now reigning in heaven and that he is going to return. Does your life reflect a readiness for his return? Because his return is as certain as his resurrection. Have you put your hope in him? Have you put your trust in him? Have you put faith in him? If not, let today be the day that you hear his voice. Let today be the day of your salvation. Be reconciled unto God by placing all of your hope and your faith in his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. And in raising him from the dead, God has demonstrated that he is able to supply our hearts and our minds with a sure and certain hope in Christ, that God himself and the hope that we have will most certainly deliver all of his people through this life and into the presence of his glory in heaven where our hope will finally become sight. Let's pray. Our most blessed Father, we thank you so much for this passage, and we thank you for your word, which fills us with hope for not only today, but for tomorrow, for what's to come, because our hope is in you, where it belongs. And so, Father, we confess in the silence of our hearts to you that our faithfulness is so frail, that our faith is so small, but that our confidence is not in the size or the greatness of our faith, but in the greatness 
of Christ, who took our sin, who took our shame, who took those upon himself even though he himself had never sinned. And in exchange, he imputed to us his perfect, unblemished righteousness, the very righteousness of God, that we may stand before you forgiven, justified. And in order that we may live with this hope that sustains us, that motivates us unto holiness and living for you. Father, we pray that our lives would be pleasing to you, a living sacrifice as we live in light of this great hope that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. For his glory to be demonstrated in our lives for the world to see. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.